0: Go to Shopify.com slash Audioboom now to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash Audioboom.
1: Hey, Murph. Hey. What comes after 129.
2: One thirty. Look at me. That's West Virginia math right there.
1: You are it is episode one thirty of Game of Crimes. Welcome, 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 amigos, amigos, players, doo do doodets, everybody in between. Welcome back to the one hundred and thirtieth attempt to keep us off the air. We shall not quite <laughs> <into> the, <laughs> the interwebs into the universe.
2: Well, you know, not only is there 130 episodes, but we've had several bonus episodes, and then we've we've put some episodes out during the Christmas time that we don't can, don't even count in our number. So it's well above 130.
1: 206 If you think of episodes one and two, we have 266 separate segments right now. Hmm, that's good stuff. Yeah, baby. I mean, the, the heroes we bring on here—they just keep you motivated. They keep—they just keep getting better and better. Well, hey, guys, welcome back to Game of Crimes. It's me. Morgan, with my partner in crime. Hey, everybody. It's Murph. Welcome back. Murph, 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 Murph. Hey, guys, some quick housekeeping before we get started. Uh, Head on over to Apple and Spotify. Hit those five stars. Helps us out a lot. Also, on Spotify, you can leave comments on each episode. So we've gotten comments on that. Appreciate that. Um, One of them, I won't say which episode it was, but somebody said, is this person drunk? Um, It was a (laughs) special bonus episode. (laughs) (laughs) Really? <laughs> the, uh, uh, it was an author episode. So, uh, oh, oh, okay, gotcha. you. You know which one I'm talking about, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> anyway. But hey, we do read them and we appreciate them. So head on over, hit those uh, five stars, Apple, Spotify. Also head on over to our website, Podcast.com. Everything's there, including our books, pictures. Like, Go check out uh, Boyd Holbrook's episode and check out all the neat pictures we put there. Also follow us on that thing they call social media, at Game of Crimes on Twitter, Game of Crimes podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. But I'm telling you, we just got through recording before we did our intro outro. You can't make this shit up. And let me tell you. When you start talking about the crazy places you find weapons, you cannot make fish.
2: Sure. <laughs> you might have to clean that shit off of it, but...
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. We don't want to give too much away because we don't want to rob you of the satisfaction when you go over to Patreon.com slash Game of Crimes and see what go. kind of fun we have there. We've got nine one one. What's Your Emergency? We've got You Can't Make This Shit Up, Case of the Month, the NarcoMeter Meter Review, um, our monthly bonus video, uh, and our Q&A. We always love doing our Q&A with our folks. So, you know, you ask, we answer. Ask us anything. Mm-hmm. So, that's mm-hmm. always fun, but you will not find it unless you go to Patreon.com slash slash Game of Crimes and let the fun begin. Three levels, uh, Evil is Coming, Guardian of the Realm, and Warden of the Throne. You know, find the level that works for you, but just join us and hear all the fun and just super fun. I mean, it's not just fun, it's super fun that we're having.
2: Absolutely. And we get a little more opinionated over there than we do on the regular podcast. So Yeah, uh, we try and play it a little bit
1: more down the middle here, but over there, Murph Uh, tends to go off the rails, man. I got to reel him back.
2: uh, uh, When we record those, I get my soapbox out and I put it right here next to the table so I
1: can get up there on it. Yeah. <laughs> but another place you got to visit, go to Facebook, go to type in Game of Crimes fans, our favorite mafia queen, Sandy Salvato, the Iron Fist with the Velvet Glove rules overall. Find a way. Just join us, folks. We've got a lot of people that are involved, and it's a, it's a more intimate group than our big public group. We have lots of fun, share lots of mean, memes, share lots of stories. We get a lot of our guest ideas from there as well. Some of mm-hmm. our stories that make it on small town police water. You guys help us out. Go so go to Game of Crimes fans. Just type it in there. Answer a couple easy questions. And the Iron Queen with the iron fist and the velvet glove will allow you admittance if you are worthy. Right, birth Worthy. Go. Gotta be worthy.
2: Hey, if if I made it, I'm sure you'll make it.
1: Yeah, yeah, That's right. Well, but you had to bribe her too, though. You had to <laughs> there was cash involved and alcohol, I believe. Don't take off the queen don't tick off the queen. Hey, by the way, Murph, That's right. but you know what? We can't do a show like this unless we tell people what the show is about. And this is a show about crime. We talk about bad people doing bad things and bad people doing uh, bad things to good people. We take the story seriously, but
2: you know, we're not going to take ourselves serious because we're going to have some fun on here.
1: That is right. And one of the ways we have fun is we dedicate a special time in our episode to talk about funny things that happen. So Murph, I ask you, guess what time it is?
2: It is time for...
1: Small, small town, town Police, police Slaughter! slaughter. I, I have that uh, Wild Wild West theme stuck in my head. I'm going to have to go back and re-watch the episodes of that, man. Artemis Gordon and James West, man. Boom. They were good. They were they good. Were good. All show. right, Murph. This just yes. happened five okay. days ago, six days ago, in a monumentally moronic scheme. A, I, I love the way that they wrote it. A monumentally moronic scheme. <laughs> Wow. Remember, anybody remember the people we used to arrest? You know, you'd have parolees or other folks. They'd have to come in. They'd have to do a UA urine. You know, urinalysis. You know, take a UA test. You know, you have to drug test them, right? People would try and cheat, right? They would try and cheat. They'd okay. bring in somebody else's urine. You know, tape stuff to their legs, right? Oh, I
2: heard this one. I think I read this one.
1: Yeah, oh. it's one thing to submit another human's urine. It's another thing to submit dog urine. Yeah. <laughs> so she was subject to random testing as a stipulation of release related to her December 28th arrest for possession of drug paraphernalia. Um, she has a lengthy rap sheet with numerous cocaine convictions related to uh, items. So she was released on her own recognizance following his last month arrest. She had an appointment Thursday to pee in a cup at the county's misdemeanor probation units designed to detect the presence of chemical substances or controlled substances she was concerned her urine would turn up dirty with a finding likely to result in a bond revocation and immediate jailing so she showed up with a fraudulent <laughs> urine sample so from <laughs> well she so normally you're monitored by a probation officer making it difficult so uh... when she was confronted about the phony sample she reportedly admitted that she had collected urine from her aunt's dog, which she intended to provide during testing. Fight my question up. is, is how do you collect it? How do you store it? And how do you oh. carry it? Oh. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about that. Now I can't get that out of my mind. You know, she come here. She should now be charged with felonious stupidity. Buffy, Buffy, come here, Buffy. Pee into a cup for mommy. Hey, right, but Murph, you're going to love this, though, too. She was arrested at the probation office, uh, charged with... Uh, You know, uh, urine testing fraudulent practices. There you go. There's a misdemeanor. You know, Um, and he revoked her prior order, freeing her. But last year, you're going to appreciate this. She launched a cleaning service that she incorporated with her boyfriend. And ex-con Murph, you have a cleaning service that you're allowing people into your house. Her boyfriend is an ex-con whose rap sheet includes conviction for robbery, narcotics possession, disorderly conduct, obstructing police, loitering, and prowling. Isn't that the kind of people you want having in your house, cleaning?
2: Oh, absolutely. I would welcome them with open arms and a, and a 38. Uh-huh. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, Again, felonious stupidity.
1: Yeah, so... Um And in honor of our next guest, we're only going to do a couple stories here because we want to get to this. But in honor of our next guest, who, uh, after a long distinguished law enforcement career, we'll tell you about in a minute. Now he is the head of security for one of the largest corporations in the world, Mm -hmm. Walmart. He did all right. Here you go. i got a story for you from Walmart. Uh A Florida man. Florida
2: man. (laughs) Of course. Of course it's a Florida guy.
1: Florida man. In Walmart, in the bathroom, called 911 to claim there was a bomb in the store and confessed he did it because he had previously seen TikTok videos showing similar fake threats and he decided to make one himself. However, though, it wasn't his phone. He uh, stole the phone from somebody who had left it behind. He went into the bathroom, made the threat. So after the phone's owner told cops he had left it in the store, they reviewed the surveillance footage and guess what? They saw him entering the bathroom moments before the 911 call was placed. And uh, so cops quickly identified the suspect as Cody Clements, 28, who lives about 10 miles from Walmart after being read his rights. Clement reportedly copped to seeing the cell phone in the stall and deciding to make a prank 911 call. And this is the danger, people. This is the danger when you take these stupid TikTok challenges and Instagram challenges. He watched people on TikTok making fake mom threats and decided to do one himself. Now he goes, huh? I realize it was a bad decision. You think, you so? think, <laughs> uh, idiot! Just. Uh, yeah. But I like the. I finish with this. I like the judge's order. So he was. Uh, he was charged with making a false report about planning a bomb or weapon of mass destruction, a second-degree felony. Hmm. He was released from county jail on fifteen thousand dollars bond and has been ordered by a judge to have no contact with any of the WalMarts. Dude, you've just screwed your entire life. You cannot go shopping at Walmart. At you, maybe ever again. Life is over for you, pal. You (laughs) you just need to move to Ecuador. (laughs) They probably got Walmart's there, but he can't go in. Can't go there. I mean, no.
2: You can't. You get the same groceries at Walmart that you get in in these higher priced dollar, you know, stores. I mean, it's a great place to go shop, save money.
1: We just did that because the snow is coming in. So what do we do? We made a Walmart run yesterday in between the first time I shoveled the driveway and it was supposed to say clear before the snow started coming <laughs> in at 2.30 this morning. And Murph, uh, we are recording this at 4.30 in the afternoon and the snow is still coming down.
2: Yeah, baby. Yeah, we, our next door, our former next door, neighbor sent us pictures of our old house there in Virginia earlier today. And uh, i, I got to say, I just do not miss that snow at all.
1: Hey, did you have a snowblower? Did you take one with you?
2: No, we, well, we, my neighbor across the street and I, we bought one. That, that time we had the three feet of snow. Remember that several years yep. ago? So he and I bought, went together and bought one. And after that, we haven't, didn't never had another major snow. We had a few inches, but never another major snow. So I think you guys uh, that's are way what,
1: past due. That's what she said. Thank you very much. Had <laughs> a few inches. Never mind. <laughs> Oh, the- oh sorry it's just one. I've been
0: out I've
1: been out shoveling snow for too long. By the way I got to give props to my neighbor Uh, I don't want to use his name without his permission, but my neighbor. So I'm out there and the snow is kind of heavy, but he's got this new, it's not a big snow blower, but it's a battery powered shovel. So, but it shoots it in one direction, but Murphy is pretty cool. It's battery powered. You take it, you hit the handle and it's got a blade. So I'm shooting snow like 10, 15 feet into my yard. And I'm like, Hey, this is kind of fun. It saved me a little time, but more importantly, it saved me the back strain. So I didn't have to, uh, you know, bend over and throw and lift and pull a muscle. Absolutely,
2: so. yeah. Because you get ice, and and the, when the water freezes in there, that stuff gets really heavy. Oh.
1: Tell well, you wouldn't know, you traitorous bastards. You moved to Florida. You don't even you can't even spell <laughs> snow anymore. Just so you know, I walked on the beach today. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I walked too on the driveway. On the ice and the snow anyway let's get let's let's get into our as they say let's get into our case right. in chief so this was a fun one too because this is uh, this is another former DEA guy but he kind of had a, a good little history getting into DEA and uh, he's Did. got one of the most interesting cases we've talked about
2: this is one of the, this is the guy I met him when I was a I'd come back from Columbia station in South in North Carolina Greensboro and was working a case and the, the source of supply was located in Orlando. Our guest today, Matt Barden, was an Orlando police officer, and he became a narcotics investigator assigned to the DEA task force. That's how I met him. We worked the case successfully. Uh, lo and behold, he joins DEA, works his way all the way up to senior executive service, which is a special agent in charge, um, and an opportunity comes along. And you're even going to hear today, he was in headquarters when we brought Boyd and, and uh, Boyd Holbrook and Pedro Pascal to the DEA Academy, so he was very active in that. You're going to hear all the stories. One of my best friends, I love this guy to death. So uh, let's let's get him on because he's got some great stories, and and I'm, we're excited for you guys to hear what he's doing in life after DEA.
1: And, and which is very interesting too. But I'm very I'm telling you, I did this. This story was anyway. What you the title will tell it all. If you've if I don't want to give it away on this, but the title will tell it all. So Murph, we can't hear about what the story might be unless I ask you. The penultimate, the ultimate, the top of the, you know, heap question, most important one of all, are you ready to play the biggest, baddest, most dangerous game of all, the Game of Crimes?
2: Absolutely. So everybody get in, sit down, shut up, and hold on. I've been practicing this since last time. Uh, I'm really excited for you to hear my really close friend, Matt Barden.
1: Well, you know, in advance of Christmas, we thought uh, I'd team up with our next guest in Bust Murphy's Balls. So we've been doing that for the last uh, couple minutes here, but we thought we should <laughs> memorialize it and put it on air. Don't you think, Murph? Don't you think it's time we just really bring you back down?
2: Cut, hey, take, I got big it. shoulders. I can take you two guys anytime. I'm looking at the picture you're talking about. I'm smiling in that picture. What are you talking about? The, the goofy look when it was Morgan.
3: <laughs>
2: <laughs> and so for our listeners what we're talking about he's looking at so our guest today is looking at our game of crimes website looking at our pictures at the bottom of the homepage, page and I'll tell you, that was taken by a guy over in uh sweden i believe he sent it to us i thought i looked rather cute
3: uh, that- uh, i don't know about that but- <laughs> <laughs> what
2: would you say i don't know what'd about you say that.
1: Well you can introduce us to our guests or are we just going to sit here and let everybody guess. Is this our new game of crimes, you know, is it it's you know, who's you know, whose line is it? You know, who's the mystery We're going to make in? this
2: a make this a Patreon channel game where guess who we have with us today. Guess who's coming <laughs> to dinner. So actually we have uh our guest today is he and I have been friends for umpteen years. I met him when he was in Orlando Police Department. And I was a uh, 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 working agent in Greensboro, North Carolina. This is after I'd come back from Columbia.
1: Well, there's the first lie. Uh, I was a working agent. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, uh, we were investigated. By the federal government, is what you were saying. Yeah.
2: I was working with two uh, investigators in North Carolina. It was Wayne Bridgers from the North Carolina State Bureau of Investigation and JD Barber from Salisbury Police Department. We got into some Haitian uh, cocaine traffickers that were based out of Orlando. So as the case developed, we had to come down to Orlando, and we were trying to flip some people on a historical conspiracy. So I called the DEA office, and they said, "Oh, we got just a guy for you to work with. He don't do shit, so we're going to give him something to do." And that was Task Force Officer Matthew Barden. Now Mark, Matt turned out to be—I uh, mean, we have turned out to be lifelong friends now. So that—that that was probably what ninety.
3: Oh gosh, ninety six, ninety well, seven uh, was. Uh... So, when did you come back from Columbia? 94, June 94. So, I started in a task force in November of 94 and then got hired by DEA in February of 98. So, it had to be late 96, 97.
2: And, you know, and, and based on what you just told us, there's proof that DEA hires the handicaps. So
3: welcome yes, aboard there, bro. There's, no, there's no doubt. It took me three years to get hired. <laughs> three. of the handicaps. Oh, this
1: is going to be good wow. Yeah. after hearing Murph's story. Well, hey, well, let's rewind as we do with everybody, uh, Matt Barden. Colson Ostra, thing of ours. How did you get started in this thing of ours we call law enforcement? I'm assuming, you know, you did something wrong. You're sitting in the station one day going, I got to get my, you know, got to turn my life around. Otherwise, I'm going to end up in the pokey. So what happened? What's the real story?
3: Uh, you know, I grew up in uh, in Orlando, Florida, and um, uh, my dad uh, was uh, for a few years an Orlando cop. Way before I was ever uh, him and my mom uh, ever thought about me, um, and uh, through just progression of life, I was the I was the first one of of uh, eight kids uh, that was afforded the opportunity to go to college. And uh, I went to college and had absolutely no idea that you actually had to go to had to go to class to to get through it. And I, I had no resources in my family history to sit there and guide me. And uh, sad part about it, about six months after I started college, my dad died when I was 19 years old. And uh, he and I were the best of friends. I was the youngest of eight. Um, and so, long and short of it is, I, I went back to school and I tried to screw it up just about every day that I could. Um, and I was in a fraternity. And well, first I, of all, I,
1: which school were you at, and what fraternity?
3: I was. Uh, I went to Western Carolina University in the in the mountains of uh, Western North Carolina, and I was uh, in the uh, Lambda Chi Alpha. And uh after my father died, those guys uh wrapped their arms around me and it, it it was truly a great experience for me, although I had absolutely no idea going into it even what a paternity was. So um
1: anyway passed away, was it medical, was it on the job injury?
3: No, you know, my it? dad was an avid fisherman and uh and uh Steve probably has been in Orlando long enough to to know uh, where Lake Conway is and my dad was an avid fisherman. Um, and he went fishing on probably one of the coldest days of, uh, that probably still of record, um, in, uh, in Orlando is about 27 degrees as a high. And he was fishing and fell out of the boat and we had all this heavy winter gear and things wow. like that. And yeah. he's around. Oh, so he was missing for nine days. Um, I was in February of, uh, of, of, um uh, 1984. And you were how old then? I was uh, 19 years old. I'd been been at Western Carolina since uh, September or August or so of 1983. And um, he was missing for nine days. As we all know from the law enforcement business, right? It's cold, a lot of heavy gear. Uh, He he finally uh, floated up and uh, Orange County Sheriff's Office uh, recovered his body. That was on a Thursday. Uh, I can remember the deputy coming up and knocking on our door, Um, had his funeral on a Friday. I told my mom that I didn't want to go back to college. I was going to take care of her. And she looked across at my aunt and uncle who lived in Atlanta, and she said, you take him back tomorrow. And uh, so we found him on Thursday, buried him on Friday, and I was back in Western North Carolina on Saturday. And, and when uh, your mom said that, you said, yes, ma'am, right? I did. I did. She says, your dad's not even been in the grave long enough to roll over, but he will, he will if you don't go back to school. That was my dad's uh, primary focus at that point in time that, uh, you know, he, he, was, he was going to be sure that I went to, went to college. So, uh, but anyway, so I met, uh, you know, had some fraternity brothers that were in criminal justice and, you know, was really uh, lost at the time and uh, really resonated with that. Bid off on it and uh, graduated. Uh, best thing I found out of uh, Western was uh, my wife of 36 years. Um, and uh, so not long after graduation, I went back to Orlando Swore up and down that I had never wanted to work for the Orlando Police Department because they were, uh, you know, that's just, they chased me and gave me tickets and did all those things when I, in my youth. And that was the one agency I wasn't going to work for. And And, let me uh, ask you
1: something. Did you do any of those things by accident? I mean, like run from the cops or get tickets, or do you think you might have deserved
3: maybe a couple of those? Oh, I'm pretty sure I deserved a lot more than I got. <laughs>
2: so, hey, but wait before you go too much further. So, what did you major in in college?
3: Criminal justice.
2: Okay, huh? And yeah. then, do you still have to pay your wife annually
3: to stay with you? Or yeah, trust me, brother. Trust me, you know the story about that. I tried hey, brother, to screw we- it up every day, and she saved me from myself. We all married up. Yeah, there's no doubt. There's no <laughs> yeah, doubt. So, 36
1: years for me, too. You know, and I, like I told somebody one time, I said, look, I'm I'm really lucky because uh, she could have whacked me and been out of prison in 10 years with good behavior and been, you know, 26 years yeah, ahead. So, you Yeah, know, there's no true. doubt.
3: There's yeah. no doubt. So, so anyways, I, I, uh, uh, came back and, uh, of course, like, you know, so many others, uh, that you've had on your podcast that have gone into federal law enforcement I put in coming out of college thinking, I am the, I'm, I'm the person they're all looking for. And I put in every, for every agency uh, that there was out there. And of course, you get the letter to come back and say, hey, when you, when you get three years experience, give us a call. Now, and, uh, um, like, did you only well,
1: apply federally or did you apply locally as well, too, during that time?
3: No, I was a college graduate. I, I, I deserved a federal job.
1: Ah, <laughs> uh-huh,
3: gotcha. Right. I mean, that's what you, that's what you think when you come out of college, right? I mean, I'm going to be scooped up. It's
1: not and, only that I deserve it. it; they deserve me. I am that yeah, good. Yeah, yeah, go. yeah,
3: yeah, So uh, it was it was a real uh, you know settling experience, um, and so then I readjusted my my uh, goals and started applying for uh, Orlando Police Department, the Orange, Orange County Sheriff's Office. And lo and behold, um, you know, as you get older in life, sometimes God, uh, puts things in your lap that, uh, shows you that you should say never. And, uh, being a member of the Orlando police department, uh, I got hired on in February of 1988.
1: How long did the process take for you to get hired?
3: Um, you know, Morgan, I graduated college in what, May of, of 87, um, And so uh, I started the academy in February, February 7th of 88, I believe, at the J.C. Stone Memorial Police Academy. And so, what, six, eight months?
1: So what'd you do between college and uh, getting hired on, other than applying to uh, every federal agency that wouldn't take you?
3: Yep, I worked at a uh, sporting goods store, and that was a disaster. uh, uh, Because it just, you know, at that point in time, I had really... Found what I wanted to do. And I was just as, as many of us, but I, I my patience is about as short as a match. And I was really impatient. And I just, I, I wanted to get started with that because I, you know, I just envisioned that I, that's, that's what I was going to, I'd already fallen in love with it before I ever did it.
1: So did you chase down uh, shoplifters and ne'er-do-wells? Was that, did, did you try to prepare for the job by doing that?
3: No, no, we didn't do it no it was uh it was a short stint of uh you know probably four or five months when I got uh uh you know the, the call from o p d that I was hired and going to go to the to the academy um you know, I think I probably worked up and through christmas maybe of, of of that year and then took off and uh my wife or she wasn't my wife at the time, but michelle had had moved from North Carolina to Florida with me and And, uh, you know, we were just trying to get settled in and and uh, see where life was going to take us and get prepared for the academy. And and, um, so, yeah, it wasn't I I didn't I didn't do the sporting goods store thing but probably, you know, maybe four or five months.
1: Just enough to get you into the PD. So how long was your how long was your academy and did you have to stay there? Did you get to go home at night if you were local? Anything
3: like that? I was local. Uh, The academy was 16 weeks and it was not a stay at home. Everybody was pretty much local uh, within a a driving distance. We did have some uh, some folks that lived out on the coast. But if you if you know Orlando, uh, we had some folks from Brevard County uh, that would drive over. It'd be 40 or 50 miles. But um, no, it was it was 16 weeks. If I remember correctly, 6 a.m. in the morning for two hours of PT every day uh, until, you know, about five o'clock every evening. Um, And it was a joint Orlando Police Department, Orange County Sheriff's Office uh, Academy. But we had others, agencies that would send uh, recruits to their uh, to the academy as well. But it was it was primarily ran by OPD and OCSO.
1: How big was your class when you went through? How many people came on with OPD, Do you
3: remember? Uh, Gosh, Uh, I would say, oh, every bit of the neighborhood of probably 15 to 20. Orange County had probably about the same. And then we had some Winter Park PD guys, some Seminole County. I remember Brevard uh, Brevard County. Um, I think there was probably close to 45 or 50. Okay.
1: Wow. And um, but that academy, though, since you were combined like that, that's just straight state law enforcement cad or you know curriculum and everything. Because you learn about OPD after you graduate and you get on the job, right? How they do forms and do stuff like that.
3: Sure. Yeah. It was all. uh, It was all uh, not not eccentric or focused on OPD Orange County, right? Our, Our two counselors. Uh, during that academy we are uh, a sergeant from uh, the Orlando Police Department and a police officer who were assigned to the academy uh but we our, our instructors were primarily o p d and o c s o instructors but we did have others uh, other law enforcement professionals that would come in and instruct us as well so if i were very, to go very, back and, uh, go very good at police academy
1: so if we were to go back and talk to your counselors, they would say matt barden is best known for
3: uh, <laughs> I can feel in those blanks. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, Matt Barden had, back then and probably still today is one that is, uh, probably to a fault has spoke his mind. Um, some people call it speaking their mind and some people call it speaking the truth. So I, I don't know which one it is.
2: You are a little bashful, I have to tell you. It's yeah. kind of tough
3: to get you come out of your shell.
1: That's <laughs> like the job interview. There's this meme going around that go, "Well, this, you know, do you have any faults?" He goes, "Yeah, I'm, I'm honest." Well, that's not a fault. He goes, "I don't care what you think." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you gotta love it. <laughs> so, what what was the funnest thing for you about the academy? What did you like to do? What did you excel at?
3: Um, you know, I was always uh I was a Florida redneck from way back and so I I I loved the firing, uh, you know, the the gun range, uh the PT. I was always a sports guy growing up, played baseball and football. Um, you know, sitting through long hours of of uh the academy was was exciting, but like anything, um you know there were some mundane parts to it, um, but the police academy overall for sixteen weeks was was really a cool experience um probably the biggest thing and the and the and the best thing that I did is that prior to the academy uh I mentioned my wife Michelle is that uh, we would planned to get married and uh our uh prior to me even knowing we were going to the academy we we planned our wedding date for April 23rd of 1988 in the mountains of North Carolina. So I, uh, I asked permission, uh, to go and get married. They gave me a half day off on a Friday. I flew from Orlando to Asheville, North Carolina. The worst flight I've ever had in my life. And it was the most turbulent. I mean, truly the picture of people flying out of their seats because there was a, a, a late Uh, you know, spring storm over Asheville. And uh, I truly wasn't sure that I was going to, was going to make it. Uh, Michelle and I got married Saturday night, uh, had our honeymoon at the, uh, oh gosh, Grove Park Inn, uh, and uh, and, uh, one night in Asheville. And was woken up about one thirty in the morning by Hank Williams Jr, who had a concert that night in Asheville, and his whole entourage apparently were staying on the same floor as we were <laughs> uh so uh, and we got up Sunday morning and kissed her mama and daddy and family goodbye and drove back to orlando and I was in the police academy Monday morning,
1: man, I'm surprised you didn't get a letter from her parents say, "Hey, no, we need three years of experience before you can marry." <laughs>
3: Well, her 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 dad used to he, he uh, you know people from Florida have uh, have uh, gravitated towards the mountains of North Carolina and and, and uh, we were we were uh, pleasantly known as Floridians in uh, the mountains of North Carolina. So uh, I'm, I'm sure her dad, although uh, at, probably at the moment, was like, "What has my daughter gone and done?" So,
1: hey, I got to tell you, the first first law enforcement training I ever went to was actually in Jacksonville. It was what they call the Institute of Police Technology and Management, IPT. Yeah, I went to class there. Yeah. And we went down to the landings, which I think they've torn the landings up since then. And there used to be a, a Hooters there, which I understand you have some experience with. I'm going to ask you about um, but we were sitting there and this <laughs> the guy starts laughing. I said, What? He said, Check out this guy's t-shirt. And on the front, you know you're in Florida. On the front it said, When I go, I want to go asleep sleep in peaceful, like my grandpa, dot, dot, dot. Then he walked by. The back of the shirt said, Not like the other four people screaming in his car. <laughs>
2: <laughs> hey, let so me tell uh, you having lived here now for a couple of years. That's true. <laughs> there's uh
3: <laughs> there's plenty of idiots to go around. <laughs> There's a lot of rednecks in Florida. Uh, well, people I fit in. People. I'm,
2: I'm, I'm yeah. okay with being a redneck.
3: Michelle comes from the mountains of North Carolina. When she moved to Orlando with me, she says, I, I thought that the rednecks in North Carolina, <laughs> the, the, they take the cake in Florida. <laughs> well, it's like That's I tell right. more We than. are one. You are one now. You're You're a transplant. That's right,
2: bro. That's like I tell Morgan. You can be a leader or you can be a follower in life. In Florida, we choose to be the leader of the Rednecks. And, and, the and many of
3: people. our stories,
1: which I have no doubt small-town police blotter for this episode, will contain another Florida guy story. So there will always be Florida, man. <laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe. <laughs> well, so let's talk about you. Uh, you uh, you get on Orlando PD. Um, tell us a little bit, though, about the city. Because uh, the other thing, too, is I used to go to Orlando, actually, North Altamont Springs. used to teach a course there every year for two weeks. Um, uh, and a bunch of cops would come in, you know, we'd hang out there at the North Orlando Hilton and, um, right there off of I-4 and, uh, uh-huh. you know, have a great time. And like you say, those storm it was funny, those storms, um, every day at three o'clock, it just seems like clockwork, you know, boom, storm comes in for a while, moves on. But it, so tell us about Orlando, you know, the county, the size of the police department, give <laughs> us a little bit of background. Cause I want to ask you about your work at, uh, OPD.
3: So, uh, I started in, uh. Uh of course the Academy was sixteen weeks, February to about June tenth, if I remember correctly, and got out. And uh it's kinda like graduating college, right? You got out and you're like, holy cow, what's in store for us next?
1: What do I do now? Yeah.
3: So graduated on a Friday, started work on Monday and your uniform and all that kind of stuff. And I I remember we had about a two-week um you know, introductory course of this is the Orlando Police Department before we ever went out on FTO or anything like that. And it kind of just went through report writing, what you were going to see, what you were going to do, uh, you know, policies and procedures and all that kind of stuff. And uh, so that was two weeks. And then uh, uh, FTO, if I remember correctly, was um, was 13 weeks, I believe. Uh, four weeks with three different police officers on three different sections of the city and then one final make or break shooting for your job uh, 13th week if I remember correctly Um, and so back then the police department was 600-ish police officers Um, headquarters was right in the middle of downtown Orlando I would say, Morgan, um, if I remember correctly, the town, uh, you know, Orlando was, uh, gosh, 250,000, 300,000 people at the time. Big city, uh, you know, Disney, SeaWorld, uh, Universal Universal, was coming in, all that kind of stuff. You know, the town was right then at the point in the late 80s of just really blowing up and becoming – Uh, you know, not only the great tourist town that it was because of Disney, but with all the other things coming in, it would, it just really blew up as far as the, you know, you would have the people that lived in Orlando and then there would be just thousands, you know, hundreds of thousands of people there visiting, um, you know, at the same time. So there there was a, there was a lot going on in the city at that time, selling a little
0: or a lot.
1: Well I got to give you guys credit cuz I've flown in and out of Orlando many times for a lot of things and they've got one of I mean they they know how to get and move people around especially in the airport and stuff. It's not always efficient but that's one of the best places I've been through, you know, in terms of getting to where you need to go. They've got all the transportation set up, you know, Mirrors Transportation's kind of got the lock on everything. You come out, you can see all the people going to Disney and you know, hopping on the buses. So so when you get out, um, you make it through your phases. You know, you check out. So um, how's the how? How does Orlando divide up their towns, precincts, uh, districts, zones? You know, how, you know how, how do you guys assign stuff?
3: At that point in time, there was no district or precincts. Everybody uh, came to work at the police headquarters. Uh, at that time, was at 100 South UE Avenue, um, and everybody went to work from there. And so the city was broken into. Uh, five districts. You had the northeast uh, section, uh, southeast, uh, northwest, southwest, and then you had a central section. Um, And so that was the five districts. Um, uh, And you could get from uh, the headquarters to your area of work relatively quick. Um, you know, they didn't have any of us coming on or getting off right there at peak rush hour times. Um, my first job was uh, after after finishing FTO was in the southeast uh, sector of Orlando. Um, and uh, probably at the time was was one of the more quieter, uh, you know, I was
1: about to say every city when you divide it up, like when I was a cop too. Everybody knows there's one. There's always one district we used to call Bunnyland. It's like nothing yeah. happens there. You can't yeah. go out and count bunnies, right? And then you've got your other districts where shit hits the fan. Three sixty five.
3: Yeah, yeah. And so I was in the I was I was I was in the calmer Bunnyland uh, district of southeast. They're just breaking uh, you
1: in. They're getting you warmed up, right?
3: Yeah, yeah. And so uh, and um, probably within. I don't know, six or eight months uh of of being out on my own. Um they either uh they uh, I don't know, I, I, I guess did a good enough job that I uh I was recruited to come over to the uh central sector of town. And the central sector of town was uh you know, the um the uh more crime ridden at the time um uh lot of uh, uh, projects, uh, you know, government housing, things of that nature, uh, and the district was the smallest district in town. It was seven blocks wide and twelve blocks long. And you could watch it. It was twenty-four-seven chaos. <laughs> Dang! You wouldn't have had it any other
2: way. No,
3: no, 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 no. I I, I learned how to be the police in uh, in central. Okay. And, and made a lot of lifelong friends uh, during that because it was it it, it was it was constant Call it, it was truly constant
1: now what kind of shifts did you guys work were you guys you know because a lot of agencies some of them do three twelves four tens you know five eights uh you know and then did you work uh, did you have to bid on shifts or were you automatically rotated through the different shifts we
3: were we were rotated so uh, our day shift was and central was uh 5.45 lineup, 6 a.m. on the streets. Uh, shift ended at 2 p.m., five days a week. Uh, every two weeks, you would rotate. So if your days off were, say, Monday, Tuesday, the next week would be Monday, Tuesday. Then the next week, it would move to Tuesday, Wednesday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Wednesday, Thursday. And then every, I don't know uh, how many weeks it was, every couple of months, you would get a, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, then a Sunday or Saturday, Sunday, Monday. So you'd get a couple of three-day weekends in there. But it was it was historically five-eighths. I never got to uh, – we didn't bid on shifts. Uh, my understanding is they, they started that after I left patrol. Um, and, uh, you know, a lot of things have changed in police work nowadays. But uh, back then it was 5 8s
1: I just, don't you just love, and, uh, the other thing too, now, did you work solid, uh, day shift or did you have to rotate then between day shift afternoons, you know, and mids?
3: Yep. I think it was every, uh, every six weeks we rotated maybe every eight weeks. I can't remember. And so you would go day shift from six to two, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, afternoon shift two to 10, uh, midnight shift was 10 to six.
1: And don't you just love it too, um, when I was on the patrol, they would actually, at that time, we would rotate going in like Saturday night at 6 p.m., get off at 3 a.m., or Friday night, Saturday, 6 p.m. to 3 p.m., because we work nine-hour shifts. Uh, Sunday, 4 p.m. to 1. Monday morning, you're in at 9. Tuesday morning, you're in at 7. Wednesday morning, you're in at 5. And it's like, so in the span of six days, you go from getting home at that time to almost going, getting up and going to work at that time. And that used to screw Holy with your cow. sleep. Yeah. I mean, yeah. And you work. six. Six on, no six on three off. Six on three off. Seven on three off. And you guys got hit with. We got hit. So when that there was that ruling called uh, Houston versus uh, Garcia versus City of Houston, but it's when they came out with that Fair Labor Standards Act thing of 171 hours in 28 days. We were. I was on. I was on the job when that got handed down, and that screwed with everything.
3: Yeah, we we so when you would uh, finish up midnight shift, they had it to where it'd finish up, and you would be on a Friday, Saturday, Sunday weekend, but you would be six or eight weeks on midnight shift, right? 10 p to six a, and then the following Monday you would be in at six a.m. And it was just it was you you just couldn't adjust in in three days. Even as a young person, it's hard on your system. Yeah, it, it I think was, it, uh,
2: it was tough. I think is up to close to nine hundred officers now.
3: Yeah, they are big. Yeah, I mean back then, you know, I mean it's it's funny you look back and uh, you know, Steve, you mentioned that uh, that you met with Eric Smith, the chief. Now, um, you know, you have uh, John Mina, who's the sheriff of Orange County, and and uh, all those guys were uh, were coming on when when I. Uh, Left patrol, and certainly when I left the department, I was there ten years, but I only did, oh probably two years in patrol before I found my niche that i uh you know i I, I love the aspect of, of of drug work, and so i I did everything I could do um, to uh to to get into the specialized units on the drug teams and things like that, and I did probably my last seven and a half years or so. Of, uh, of, of work at OPD assigned to four different drug units. So, how long were you on OPD? I was I was in OPD from, uh, and it'll be an interesting story when we get into my time at DEA. But I was at OPD from February of uh, well, I was in the academy. Really, uh, not until you graduate the academy. So, I started OPD officially out of the academy um, in June. Of 1988, and I got the call to go to the DEA Academy in February of 1998, and even Steve smart enough to do the math that that is a few months shy of ten years. Hey, don't
1: don't don't underestimate Steve's ability to not do math. So yeah, wait, I got to
3: take my socks off. Hold on a second. Yep. (laughs) So I was about five months shy of my ten years at OPD. And I know I'm jumping ahead here. Oh, but no, no, no. That's we'll, we'll okay, because
1: that's what we want to talk about, because at some point, uh, you get into these units because you end up meeting this dude named Murphy.
2: Yep. Best, best thing ever happened. Best day of your life. Well, except yep. for the day you met your wife.
3: Yep. Yep. So, uh, yeah. So, I, I left patrol. I went into what was called, uh, at one point in time, it was called the Tactical Patrol Force. And I guess somewhere down the line, in the, in the culture of law enforcement, in about 1992, TPF got changed because it was kinder, gentler, from tactical patrol force to the uh, uniform drug unit. And so there was 20 of us on uh, two two-man teams, and it was uh, it was it was probably some of the greatest fun and the greatest cops I'd ever worked with, and. Uh, it, it, it was just a, It was it, it was really fun. It was a pleasure. We did a lot of good work. The city looked to us to to conquer and, and tackle a lot of problems that were in Orlando. Um, believe it or not, Murph, uh, downtown Orlando used to be uh, quite the, quite the mess. Um, and so uh, that was a that was a great time. Um, did some really cool things uh, there, but it primarily was in uniform. Uh, but we did work informants and we just dealt a lot with just street level drugs and guns and violence. And, you know, the city would send, the police department would send us out to, to, uh, areas that had, uh, you know, an increase in carjackings or, you know, during the Christmas time of, uh, purse snatches in the parking lots and, and things like that. So it was, it was not only a uniform drug unit, but it was still the, the, uh, you know the tactical patrol force kind of uh, mentality that we would go out to, to these to these areas of town that uh, needed an extra presence presence of law enforcement. So,
1: so what what drew you towards drugs? Why drugs? Why not work robberies? Why not work? You know, other what, what was it about dope that said this is what I want to do?
3: I you know, more working in the central sector of town, it was so hard hit. That I truly just uh, you could see firsthand and at the at the human level of the destruction, and it just was something that I felt that um, you know I, I went to work every day thinking that uh, you know you could go there and and, and make a difference, and that, and that's kind of what you know it's crazy nowadays when you think about it, but probably a lot of us, and the, I'm sure there's a lot of good cops out there that still go in every day to conquer the world and you know i went in every day thinking i could save the place
1: well you know i mean you, it's like the the fallacy is a lot of guys even when i was young oh, i'm going to change the world you what you realize is i can't change the world but i can change my little patch of the world here i mean i can do something here uh, what was what was the uh everybody's going through an ec- epidemic of something at that point so what was the big what were the big drug problems sitting in orlando that was causing all of this activity
3: oh it was crack cocaine 100 percent. okay yeah i mean it was just there was nothing else it was it was devastating it was a uh, very hard hit um I, I mean you know i'm sure there's there's no doubt that uh you know there was a lot of places in the country that were that were plagued by that and orlando was no different and it was just um it was truly devastating to the downtown sector uh of orlando and um and, you know and the 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 place that was most prevalent that you would go uh if you lived in the city of orlando was you would go down to the central sector and buy your crack and it uh it knew new it uh crack cocaine addiction knew no race no creed no color no religion no sex no age
1: so um in your estimation of all the crime that was going on in central sector, you know, everything from robberies, burglaries, um, you know, whatever, how much of that do you think was related to drugs?
3: Oh, I, I, I mean, I, you know, as you hear people nowadays going out, you know, all these big numbers and, and, you know, and how they come about that, I guess it just pops in your head. I would tell you that the majority of crime uh, in the central sector of Orlando was driven by crack cocaine. It was prostitution. Was... It was burglaries. It was theft. It was petty theft. It was murders. Uh, I mean, I I can't tell you how many murders I saw over a twenty dollar rack, uh, twenty dollar rack of crack cocaine.
2: You know what? And that, doesn't that seem like so? You know, based on your narcotics career, doesn't it seem like the smaller the
3: drug dealer, the more violent they are? Oh, absolutely. I've seen people. I mean, it doesn't matter, white, black. Uh, it it didn't matter if you, if you didn't pay your 10 or 20 bucks and you tried to drive off on somebody, you had a good possibility of, uh, not making it home. Yep.
2: It's crazy. I mean, we've taken down people with hundreds and hundreds of kilos of Coke and there's never a weapon
1: involved. Well, it's like when we talked to Luis Navia, Luis was a guy, one of our episodes, he was popped with 26 tons of cocaine and he worked, uh, with, uh, Rascuño and, these big dope dealers. And his thing was, I never carried a gun the whole time, man. He, and he's dealing yeah. in thousands of kilos, never, yeah. never carried a
3: gun. Yeah. I guess it's a difference between the business and the, you know, and I mean, just the violent aspect of it. And, it, you know, back then, you know, a wad of money in somebody's pocket might be a couple of thousand dollars, you know, but that was everything in the world to them. That, that was everything they had was what was in their pocket. Um, and it just, you know, again, you had, uh, you know, smaller drug dealers that worked for medium drug dealers who worked for big drug dealers. And what they wanted was that, you know, they wanted a bunch of $20 bills. Yep. So.
1: Let's yep. let's talk about this uh, case that brought you up and introduced you to this man we call Murphy. The man called Murph. That should be a movie or something. We should make a series about you, Murph. Um, okay. You know, Go one ahead. of the things that you did. <laughs> All right.
2: <laughs> I think, wait a minute. Narcos, Narcos
1: might have been. Yeah, you know that's a loser thing. That's that's like so um, we're so over Narcos now. Although you keep getting brought out to speak about it, you know. By the way, Pablo's not dead. He he apparently isn't (laughs) dead because he's he's alive and well. When you consider all the stuff you've been asked to do and all the interviews you've done,
2: you know how many documentaries can you do on the same person who died thirty years ago?
1: Well, here's the thing, Murph. It, the, an infinite number. You know why? Because you've got a new crop of people growing up learning about this stuff. So you've always got, you know, new people showing up. So
2: Apparently. I mean, this is this has turned into a career, so I'm, I'm happy with it.
1: <laughs> yeah, and, let's, and we'll, we'll talk about your trip to Saudi Arabia, too. It was like, uh, fly all the way over there, you know, for one yeah. hour on a panel.
2: They, they, you know what? <laughs> there were a lot of Narcos fans over there, too. That was surprising.
1: Well, you know, because it's the death penalty over there. Um, oh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah,
2: severe. Yeah. It's it's like it's not we're going to shoot a needle in your arm. <laughs> we're going to chop
3: your head off yeah, in public.
1: Yeah, and it, it, when you when you're going into those countries, and I've been into a few where you look on the back of the form, they say we have the death penalty for you know importing drugs. It's like, yep, yeah, I can check no on that box. No drugs with me. You know, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So let's talk about it. What brought you up to North Carolina? Back 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 to your old stomping grounds, right? At least somewhere near them.
3: Yeah. So, you know, again, to kind of give you the, to the lay of the land, I left the Uniform Drug Unit, went into the Undercover Drug Unit uh, at the police department, did about my my drug unit stint, uh, was about 18 months in the Uniform Drug Unit. I went to the Undercover Drug Unit for probably about 18 months, got recruited into uh, a, a task force that's uh, probably... Uh, One of the longest standing drug task forces uh, in the country is called the Metropolitan Bureau of Investigation. And it uh, it was out of the Ninth Circuit uh, State Attorney's Office and it encompassed Orange and Osceola County. Um, And so uh, I I did about 18 months there and uh, and then applied and and got uh, transferred over, uh, you know, assigned to the DEA uh, task force. in uh November of nineteen ninety-four and um worked some really, really uh cool cases uh there. Um one of them uh and and I'm I'll get up to the part about Steve, but one of those cases uh was uh, uh I worked a, a case on a um former collegiate uh, all American football player uh who went to the NFL and uh, got injured, and came out and came back home, and 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 got tied into a pretty big cocaine ring. And I will tell you, uh, if it's all right, I'll, I'll just leave their name out of it because they have uh, done their time, been successful, and uh, and and I don't want to peel any scabs back on on him. And 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 uh, he he's turned into a very good man, and he's working at the collegiate level in a football program now. And um it was truly one of those eye opening things that boy how people can get them into something that they wish they never did. Uh and I truly believe this guy. But anyways, um one of the one of the guys we arrested out of that case and it involved uh in in Orlando, even though we were so close to Miami, and you've heard Stevie talk about hundreds and hundreds of kilos and Kevin Stevens and people like that talking about just the you know the boatloads of cocaine that would come into Miami. By the time it made it to Orlando, it'd be 10 and 15 kilos. So, I mean, the most dope I saw ever in my life was during this case. And, and uh, it was, uh, um, we knocked off at one time the biggest hit. We got numerous kilos through the course of the investigation, but the biggest hit on a one-time hit was seven kilos. And long and short of it is, is we, uh, we ended up arresting this one guy. He flipped, took me down to, uh, took me down to Miami to, to, to work a case on his source down in Miami and, uh, actually, uh, worked with group 10 down in Miami, who was our response group to Orlando. And, uh got down there and worked with, uh, Kevin Stevens, a guy by the name of Mike Seamus. If you remember Mike, mm-hmm. Very uh, well. Stevie. And, uh, when we went down there, we, we, uh, did a, we were picking up five kilos, which at the time was, uh, not even something that was prosecuted by the U S attorney's office down in Miami because it wasn't 500 kilos. It was five. And, uh, I think I was either riding with Kevin Stevens or or Mike Seamus, but we did a takedown in a, I think it was a McDonald's parking lot. And the guys ran in their car and head on Kevin Stevens' car, the car that Kevin was in. And uh, anyway, he's gotten a foot chase. I caught this guy, biggest human being I ever arrested in my entire life. When I got close enough to him, when when I was chasing him down, I literally took my gun and tapped him on the shoulder while we were in a dead sprint and said, I'm not going to fight you. And he stopped. <laughs> I was like, dude, I'm a big guy. I'm 6'4, 240. He was probably 6'8, 350 and running like an elk. Wow. And uh, I mean, it was amazing. But, anyways, that's my, I, I met Kevin Stevens because I, you know, I know that uh, you guys have interviewed Kevin. But, anyways, through this time of getting to, uh, of, of visiting down there to Miami, at Group 10, I always noticed that there was a picture on the majority of guys' desks.
1: Of Murph, right? Murph went around putting his picture on everybody's desk, didn't he?
3: Damn right. <laughs> and, and I couldn't figure out who this guy was that was on a red-tiled rooftop <laughs> holding this dead guy's head like he had just shot a 12-point buck.
1: in his red Target shirt, too, no less. his
3: red Target <laughs> shirt with his goofy hat. Walmart. That was Walmart.
2: Yeah. And, what the, and that'll and, come uh, into
3: play later yeah and so anyways they told me that this guy used to be in group 10 and all this kind of stuff and and uh you know this was prior to steve and i meeting and uh i'm sure they probably told me his name at the time but again like like we started off stevie called up or i i i, I don't remember steve if you called or if i called greensboro because i found out that uh our guys were running dope to greensboro but somehow or another we ran into each other, and we also have a mutual friend by the name of Rob Murphy, who's the special agent in charge of the uh, Atlanta field division for DEA. And it was actually a, a a case that Rob worked as a member of the Uniform Drug Unit with the Orlando Police Department that he brought to me, that we started working jointly that had ties to to Steve's case in in Greensboro. So, uh, that's kind of the roadmap of how that whole thing got started and. It's funny i actually uh, rob called me this morning steve yeah. so it's it kind of it's just a, you know funny how things work out but uh um uh met steve uh had this joint investigation and again had absolutely no idea who steve murphy was the, the didn't the picture didn't ring a bell uh you know none of that and uh we collaborated on these things i think uh, me and my partner time joe gallagher who was a Volusia county deputy who was a tfo uh, we went to, I know Greensboro, you guys came down. I don't, I don't remember which one was first, Yeah, I, but I, I do know who we went, go ahead.
2: I was going to say, I think the connection came through as we're building this case on this Haitian organization, we were looking for some historical aspects as well to put a historical conspiracy together. And you had some defendants that were locked up in, in a federal correctional institute,
3: not too far from Orlando. in yeah, Jessup, yep. I think or in, uh, in, uh, oh gosh, what's it?
2: Yeah, uh, But
3: anyway, it's not far from Gainesville. Yeah. So I think that's how it started. And then it just kind of blossomed from there. Yep. Uh, so Stevie brought his, uh, the, the two, uh, task force guys down with him who I'm sure carried him the entire way through the investigation. Heck Yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> that sounds familiar. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> we ended up at a Hooters in downtown Orlando. Woo-hoo.
1: Now there's uh, a shock. That's I'm yeah. shocked. All
3: right. And, uh, I've never. I don't think I've probably, besides maybe in college, been kicked out of an institution as such. And we got kicked out of a Hooters. Well, now hold on a second. Orlando. Hold
1: on, you just can't gloss over stuff. So, four off
3: to one, the cops.
1: You you gotta you gotta work pretty hard to get kicked out of a Hooters. But let's rewind a little bit and talk about this sexual assault that you were a part of.
3: That Murph was a part of? No,
1: you were a part of. Apparently, um, you were accosted by one of the waitresses after she spilled something in your lap.
3: Uh, was, it, was it me or the other TFO, Murph? It was J.D. Oh, yeah. it was J.D.?
1: Oh, it was yeah, J- it was J.D. Well, see, I was yeah. just looking to see whether or not you would confirm or deny it was you. You know, we're trying to eliminate suspects in this investigation.
3: <laughs> no, I'm not going to admit to that one. My, my my wife will listen to this one day. And so uh, it was not me. Uh but I do remember the manager after that happened that the manager came over and said uh, you guys uh JD and I don't know maybe they didn't have any uh you know hooters in Greensboro at the time uh but they 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 they, they enjoyed themselves a great deal and we were politely or impolitely asked to uh, asked to leave.
1: <laughs> yeah, but you, were were you were you asked to leave? I mean, again, it's a badge of honor. You were asked to leave Hooters. Not you know, you got to do a lot to get asked to leave. But was it because you guys were really being disruptive, or is it because everybody was like hanging around you guys? Nobody wanted to do any work.
3: No, it was it was the, it was the latter. They didn't want to do any work, and we, it, it was not uh, fighting and fussing and 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 being unruly. It was. Uh, it was, we were having too much fun.
2: Well, and, and I'll just tell you. Jay, so the waitress spilled sauce on JD's pants. And JD was single. So there's, you know, I mean, it's okay. And he's a good looking guy. Now, I don't think so, it
1: was just accidental or intentional. You think that you think the sauce, as you reflect back now, was that an intentional spill, Murph?
2: I've never been spilled on in any Hooters I've been in. But Omar, this one, if you
1: ever wonder why, I can tell J- you. Know. <laughs> yeah.
2: I guess I don't Look have the JD with on me. the
1: website, brother.
2: <laughs> <laughs> but then she, you know, I mean, she's being a good waitress, and she offered to clean JD's up. And JD's a good old boy. He's a, he's a good old country boy, and he got a little embarrassed, and that just made it funnier. And <laughs> and then yeah. the other waitress just started coming over, and we just we weren't doing anything improper. We were just having a good evening. Yeah. No. I mean, yeah. nobody's hitting. Them. We're trying to set JD up because the other, the rest of us were married. Yeah. And JD's yeah. just—he was so, you know, <laughs> I don't want to say innocent, but um, he wasn't used there to. There was that a more. lot of
3: beer involved too. Yeah. Well, and I
1: will <laughs> tell you, alcohol. I have a story probably about the same Hooters. So when I told you I would come down and teach a course, so one of those times I brought um, my middle son down, and it was his—we uh, wanted to celebrate his birthday. Mm-hmm. and we went in, and I found Hooters used to have those baseball-style jerseys. Looked really good, you know, the, yeah. the the gray, you know. So I got it, but I also got a special thing. So I've never seen my son blush this much. Not only I said, hey, put it on, put it on when he did. About six or seven of the waitresses all came up. They had just put lipstick on. They kissed him all
3: over his face, <laughs> and I got a picture. <laughs> yeah.
1: For his 16th well, birthday, here's a 16-year-old going, oh, I've scored, you know.
3: Was it the Hooters in downtown Orlando? Yeah, or I, think, right? I think it
1: was, yeah. Um, yeah. I'm trying to think.
3: That's the one. Church yeah. Street Station. Yeah, Murph's picture's still up there being trespassed. Church
1: Street Station. We would <laughs> Not go allowed
3: down there many of the
1: times to, uh, for, training, for training purposes now, but that's closed, I hear. Is that, is that closed now?
3: Probably so, you know. Probably I think so. a lot of
1: things got hit with COVID. I mean, there were so many nightlife there just shut down.
2: Yeah, let's just yeah. check out on my outdoors right. internet here.
1: Well, let's let's uh, let's kind of talk a little bit too, because uh, now that we've got the Hooters thing out of the way, but um, so you know, you got at some point you have your three years in. Why did you wait longer than that three years to apply for uh, for the feds again?
3: Well, so we had a hiring freeze with the government uh, from about ninety oh, I don't know, Stevie, if you can remember, it was early nineties to. 94 95 the end of 94 beginning of 95 and so when it opened back up i'd just been to the task force a few months um and all of a sudden of course three or four years of a hiring freeze the 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 the, uh the number of federal agents had had declined through retirements and all other attrition and so DEA and other federal agencies, uh, you know, just put on a big uh, push for, for hiring. And I remember, um, I, again, as I started out with my love for law enforcement, I truly at this point in time with, you know, about seven, seven and a half years on, uh, had found what I wanted to do uh, through the task force. And there was just no other agency that I wanted to work for besides DEA. Um, so I applied, and, as I said it took uh, it took probably every bit of two and a half three years. Um, i could not uh, DEA has a very and i 'm not saying that others don 't I just can tell you about deAs but DEA's hiring process is pretty daggone rigorous uh, not only uh, you know the um, uh, the process itself, the background investigation, the polygraph, but the medical uh, the the actual physical exam um, was was tough, and I could not pass the hearing tests to save my life. What? I failed what? and failed huh? and failed what? the hearing What'd test you say? What? Yeah, and I even I, so I started. Well, was that one the, of those
1: things where you had to press the button when you heard the beep? Right. You, yeah. you, what you
3: just yeah. got to do is just keep doing it, all. brother. <laughs> I, let me tell you, Morgan. I I prescribed to that theory until one time one of the nurses came and knocked on the booth. And she says, you cannot continuously push the button. (laughs) True story. So I failed and failed and failed. I went to, I don't know how much money my wife and I spent. It was outside of our insurance for the police department because it was like, you cannot continuously go to these ears, nose and throat specialists. And, uh, I went to a doctor who was, uh, actually, uh, Air Force, uh, retired Air Force in the program at NASA over at, uh, Kennedy Space Center in Brevard County who retired and he came out and when he saw the hearing test for DEA, he says, I want to let you know, this is a harder hearing test and, and, uh, than we give astronauts, uh, in the space program
0: wow. and,
3: uh, you know, um, but anyways, I finally found somebody who, although I failed, said I could hear the tones that was required. And I don't know. Again, I think I, I, I did a good enough job uh, through investigations as a TFO that I had a lot of good people. Uh, Mike McManaman was my boss at the time, Steve, and you know Mike very well. He called me this uh, Mike morning. Mike was a big push. Uh, Steve Collins, who was at S.O.D., with he pushed for me. Had a lot of people backing me. Uh, somehow, some way, uh, they got a hold of uh, a gal that y'all have uh, interviewed um, named Michelle Linhart. and uh, miraculously, one day I got a call and they said, "Hey, um, you're back in the process." So, and what, so,
1: what you're trying to tell me is that um, you had an opportunity to become an astronaut and you turned it down.
3: I, apparently, apparently, I did, but there was nothing more that I wanted to be. Well, don't at, worry, Murphy's
1: uh, an astronaut too. I don't know if you knew that. He he excels at taking up space everywhere he goes. <laughs> there you exactly. go. Exactly. You got to leave your mark. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, so your marks are in your underwear, Murph. But as I digress, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> so uh,
3: so uh, you know, um, it was it was one of those things I never thought was going to happen, um, and uh, but it did. Um,
1: Did you ever find out what the audio issue was? Was it hereditary? Was it just uh, um, playing sports without a helmet? You know, what caused it?
3: No, I think I, I think what it came down to is, uh, again, going back to the beginning of being a Florida redneck. Uh, I just grew up in a family with guns and friends that we would go out and shoot and, and, and no uh, air protection you know, and no concept whatsoever of an earplug or an ear protection. And I can tell you that many times in my life that I shot a true three fifty seven magnum revolver um, i would I, I would hear bells ringing for three and four days afterwards, and it was just something about that pitch. and uh, you know, through all these doctors, they literally told me they said you they could tell from the pitch that I you know was so uh, depleted in my hearing. They said you you've shot a lot of guns without a hearing protection. I said I I have, and they said you uh you'll never get it back, and I have it. (laughs) So do
1: you still get the tinnitus, or some people call it tinnitus? Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. Yeah. So anyways, got on. Got uh uh. I remember I'm a big hunter, and I remember being out hunting, and I got a back then. Of course, we had pagers, right? I was at the DEA task force, had a pager, got a 202 number. Uh. Got out, of the, got out of the woods. I called the 202 number, and it was DEA headquarters saying, Hey, I uh, want to offer you a job, and you need to start the academy uh, February 17th of 1998.
2: So how much advance notice did you
3: get? Uh, that was probably, Stevie, probably uh, December when I got the call. Oh, really? Yeah, so I got the call uh, late December. And I, I literally remember telling the lady, and and now remember, this was we didn't have cell phones. This was me going and finding a payphone to call Washington. And I told the lady, I said, um, I want the job, but I have to do the smart thing, and I need to call home and ask permission. <laughs>
1: Hey, players, that is the end of Part 1. Part 2 comes out, as always, on Tuesday. In the meantime, go check us out at Game of Crimes on Twitter, at Game of Crimes Podcast on Facebook and the Instagram. Also, go check out our website, gameofcrimespodcast.com. We've got a lot more information there, including our book list. Any book written by our guests will be listed there. In the meantime, go check us out also, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. It's where we put a lot more content you won't hear on our regular podcast. We go into a lot more topics, and folks, it is a lot of fun. So go check us out, patreon.com slash Game of Crimes. In the meantime, everybody stay safe. We'll see you tomorrow for part two.
0: passes from £89. Book yours now
4: at thepodcastshowlondon.com.